Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I used to joke that we had more fun working on that show than people should be allowed to have and still get paid for it. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about The Drowsy Chaperone, which was a listener request, first of all, from Morgan. She requested the show over a year ago. It was so interesting. I received the request and then put out feelers to different guests to see if they would be interested in talking about the show. And I couldn't find anybody. Everybody I talked to, at least, said, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that one. So then I put it toward the bottom of the list. Then, uh, not too long ago, I got a second listener request from Hannah. She had just got done doing the show with her theater company. She played the chaperone. She said that they did the show uh, during COVID with masks on and everyone was socially distant. But even with these less than ideal circumstances, the show was amazing. And this is what she had to say about Drowsy Chaperone. The main reason why Drowsy is so important to me is the main reason of the show. And the best that we can do is hope a bluebird will sing his song as we stumble along. To me, she writes, this means that no matter how bad things get, as long as we can find that one positive thing that makes us happy, everything will be all right as we continue our way through life. Knowing this, this show is so relevant to everyone during these scary times that we seem to stumble through. But if we can all find our own little bluebird, things should turn out all right. Isn't that sweet, Ken? That is incredible. I love that. Thank you, Hannah, so much for being so sweet and thoughtful in your request. Long story short, too late. Morgan and Hannah have both requested the show. So now I was like, all right, we have got to find the perfect guest. And I did. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I mean, you're basically a man in chair. At this point, right, Ken? (laughs) Oh, I absolutely am. (laughs) It's our own man in chair. It's Mr. Ken Werther, everybody. Hello, everybody. Now, Kenny, you're a dear friend of mine, and I'm I'm so grateful that you're on the show. You also have a really beautiful little connection to the Drowsy Chaperone, because you were there at its American inception. I was indeed. So at this point in Los Angeles, you were working for Center Theater Group, which is a big organization in downtown Los Angeles that does a lot of premieres, a lot of -of out-of-town premieres before shows go to New York. Mm -hmm. And what were you doing for them? You were working... I was working in the press office. I have a long history with CTG. And then along came this pre-Broadway, prior-to-Broadway musical. Its original title was A Gay Wedding. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) And of course, there's a very funny line in the show where the man in chair is describing the the musical to the audience. And he says, whatever it is, fun, mayhem and a gay wedding. And then he stops and he looks out into the audience and he says, of course, gay wedding had a different meaning back then. Uh, They actually struggled with the title and sort of begrudgingly settled on the drowsy chaperone. 
I had a very interesting, the night the show closed in LA, which happened to be Christmas Eve, 2005. I cannot believe this thing was 15 years ago. <laughs> I had a conversation uh, with actually someone you know quite well, my friend David Elzer, who is also a publicist, publicist. in town. Yeah. And I saw him on Christmas Eve and I was, and I had just come from the final performance at the Amazon. And I was telling him how the audience reacted and how much they loved it and what pandemonium there was at the stage door immediately following the performance. And I was sort of bemoaning the fact that we had trouble selling it and that the critics had been... The the reviews were good. The reviews were very, very good. Pleasant, maybe. Yeah, I think your word is right. Very pleasant reviews. The thing that that motored the show through the rest of its six-week run after it opened and got reviewed was word of mouth. Audiences were having a ball. I think it's impossible to go to the Drowsy Chaperone if it's a, if it's a solid production and not smile the whole way through. Absolutely. Which is exactly the type of show where you then go out and tell somebody. Right. <laughs> and as a publicist, you know, my my war cry is it doesn't matter how much money you spend on advertising. There is no better publicity than positive word of mouth. Mm. That's really what sells tickets. And producers know that. But but I, here here's my point. My, uh, I'm infamous for talking around the point. I was bemoaning this problem to David Elzer, and he said to me, as a marketing maven, as I like to call him, he said to me, Kenny, you can't really be surprised that you had trouble selling a show called The Drowsy Chaperone. He said, the word drowsy is death. You're subliminally telling your audience you may fall asleep. I guess, you know, and I have to be honest, I had never thought of that. And wow. and and the sh- and we didn't really talk about it in the office. I mean, I I left that that final performance so sad, not because of what we're talking about really, but because I had to say goodbye to everybody. <laughs> uh, and and That's believe so me, they were not all like that. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot say the same for all. No, I cannot. I mean, I don't want to name titles nine to five the musical, but it <laughs> but it, you know, it, there were there were ones that ended up not being all that much fun, leap of faith. So um yeah. Oh, Kenny. I'm love going you. St- listen, I'm going straight to hell and you know. <laughs> If poor Raul Esparza hears this, he's not going to be very happy. If Raul Esparza is listening to this, call me we and we'll, get, happy, we'll, right? we'll have a conversation. <laughs> um, that's fantastic. By the way, you don't work for Center Theater Group anymore. <laughs> no, I do not. No, I do not. I left there uh, in 2009, which was four years after uh, The Drowsy Chaperone. But I did have the pleasure... Uh, in 2006, of going to New York for some business reason, I forget what now, and I got to see the show on Broadway, which Aww. was exciting. That had to have uh, been That was exciting. only the second show in my career that I had worked on uh, on the West Coast prior to Broadway that I got to see on Broadway. And in fact, the other one, which was Sweet Charity starring Debbie Allen. Oh. 
I was actually at the opening night, which was so exciting. That's two for two in my book. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I've been I've been a lucky guy in my career. I, I should, you know, while I'm joking about shows that weren't so much fun, uh, I should I should be clear. I have no complaints. That's beautiful. I saw The Drowsy Chaperone all by myself in New York as well. It was my New York showcase trip for college. All of us oh, seniors wow. went and did the showcase for agents and, and stuff, all of whom were very nice and said, call us when you move here. Because, like, what are they going to do for us? <laughs> anyway, while we were there, though, I was like, I want to see The Drowsy Chaperone. I treasure my experiences where I go into a musical and I know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And that was the case with this little show. It, it had just opened. Uh, it seemed like it was getting, like you said, good word of mouth. And, and I didn't know what it was about or any of the songs. So I was like, boom, I have to go to this one. I get a ticket, I believe, from TKTS for the matinee. I show up. The sweet woman, who's the usher, takes me mm-hmm. to my seat. And as she's like guiding me down the aisle, she goes, have you heard? We're a hit. Oh, isn't that so cute? I love that. <laughs> she was like so proud of the show. And, and I love that she had some ownership of it, that she's like working on it in front of house. It just felt like a family in a, in a very real way. I smiled throughout the whole thing. And, um, and I don't know if I want to say this last part. Who knows if I'll include it into the episode. But okay. afterward... I was at the stage door because I wanted to get signatures from everybody. Mm-hmm. And and on my right was this little gaggle of gays who were um, <laughs> who were gossiping about all of the shows on Broadway. And then somebody else on my left, Sutton Foster this and Sutton Foster that and and like just spouting off facts so that everybody could hear. And I looked at myself like from outside myself and thought, what am I doing right now? <sighs> and it was the last time I ever waited around at the stage door for an autograph. Oh, but did you get them? No, I left. You left? Yep. Very grateful, not judgmental. I didn't feel sad or angry. It just felt like it was this moment of growing up. You know, that's really interesting because I had an experience like that in my in my career Uh it's a stupid story and has nothing to do with the drowsy chaperone. It actually has to do with the musical Curtains, which I oh, also worked on prior really to fun Broadway. Show. Very fun. Um, and interestingly, just as long as it comes up, that show got less enthusiastic reviews than the drowsy chaperone and did more, did better business. Wow. Now, David Hyde Pierce was in it, of course, sure. and he went on to win a Tony Award for his performance. Karen Ziemba, shout out. Oh, love her. But the Drowsy Chaperone, of course, had no, well, it had a few sort of names, like Georgia Engel was in it. Mm-hmm. I should, poor thing is dead now. I shouldn't call her a sort of name. But um, <laughs> the show had I, legends, but, but not necessarily celebrities. How about that? Right. And Sun Foster was a huge star to theater people, but. This was before her two television shows and everything else that she's done. That's true. Sutton Foster, unbelievably beloved by her fans. Oh, and uh, she should be. It's true. And and her story is so crazy, as you know, about being the understudy. It's like that story nobody, you know, you think it's never really a true thing that happens to people. But she was an understudy. And they fired, well, they, you know, they didn't say they fired her, but they fired the lead actress and she stepped in and won a Tony Award and became a star. 
Thoroughly Modern Millie. Yep. She has a thing with the 20s. I'll tell you that. She, she, <laughs> she does indeed. So in order to really talk about the history of this show, we actually have to go to Canada. That's right. This beautiful little love letter to American musical theater was created by a bunch of Canadians. That's absolutely <laughs> true. As a wedding gift. Bob Martin, full name Robert Martin, was getting mm. married to his wife, Janet Vandergraaff. Now, if you know the musical, these names sound very familiar. They are literally the names of the two lead characters within the musical The Drowsy Chaperone. Sidebar, The Drowsy Chaperone, for those who don't know, is a musical within a show, right? We're watching this man, man in chair, listen to one of his favorite old shows, The Drowsy Chaperone. And as he's listening to it in his apartment, the show comes to life and we're able to see both him listening to it and telling us what's going on in the show as well as see it play out in his living room. It's this wonderful piece of theater magic. So within that show, the two lead characters are Robert Martin and Jan Janet Vandergraaf, who are based on this real-life couple who are getting married. And their friends as a wedding gift, decided to write a dirty little musical version <laughs> of a 1920s <laughs> show to celebrate their wedding. That was the, the first incarnation of The Drowsy Chaperone. It then got expanded and workshopped. Uh, they introduced the show within a show idea with the man in chair, who was then played by who? Bob Martin. Bob Martin. It blows my mind, the levels of, like, meta that are happening here. Yep. It catches the eye of a couple of producers, and then that's how it finds its way to Los Angeles. Now, am I kind of missing anything? Is there anything you want to add to that? No, that's really what happened. Um, and the other thing that I learned at the time, and again, most people don't know, is that the word drowsy means... A little tipsy. Yes. Not just sleepy, which is what we think of it now. Another word would be like the boozy chaperone. The, exactly right. At one point she says, champagne makes me drowsy. Why would anyone put olives in a Gibson? Anyway, <laughs> There are um, so many great lines. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, but that's what happened. Yes, that's what happened. The score is written by Lisa Lambert and Greg Morrison. The book was written by Bob Martin, a.k.a. Man right. in Chair, a.k.a. Robert Martin, the groom, and Don McKellar. Now, in the time it took from it becoming a wedding gift to a Broadway musical, these friends also created a television show. And I just have to take a moment to shout out Slings and Arrows because if you haven't seen this television series, oh my gosh, this television series, which was a Canadian uh, TV show, it has three seasons all about a Shakespearean repertory company in Canada, you must, must see it. It's absolutely delightful. Have you seen it? And mind you, I did not know anything about it at the time. Really? When you were working yep. on Drowsy? I had no idea what a Bob Martin was when I first, <laughs> you know, when I first met him. And, uh, and people kept saying to me, oh, my God, Bob Martin? Bob Martin? Slings and arrows, Bob Martin? And I'd be like... Uh, it's a terrific series and gets you so jazzed about classical theater. 
if there is an antagonist in the show, it's the people who are trying to invade the Shakespearean festival with musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just fantastic. Hence, hence uh, uh, something rotten, but that's a whole other <laughs> that's conversation. A, that's another episode. <laughs> right. What I would love to do before we start going through the show is to spend mm-hmm. a little bit of time talking about the type of musical theater that The Drowsy Chaperone, the musical within the musical, is both poking fun of and celebrating. Mm-hmm. Now, in order to do that, we got to go back to World War I, which seems kind of strange, but stick with me. Up until that point, the main musicals on Broadway were Reviews and Operetta, which was all essentially European, European composers. World War I happens. That kind of gives birth to the princess musicals. The princess musicals got their name from the Princess Theater, which was a smaller theater. It had Mm -hmm. actually less than 300 seats and a smaller stage, a smaller backstage. And it wasn't big enough to house those huge operettas and those huge uh, review shows. So the new generation of American musical theater composers stepped up and said, Let's write new little musicals that will be perfect for the Princess Theater. The most famous of those composers is Jerome Kern, who Mm -hmm. revolutionized pop music at the turn of the century and eventually wrote Showboat. He started writing, and other people soon joined, writing these little musicals that maybe had two sets instead of the huge chorus and multiple uh, locations that operettas did. So much so that when the 1920s come around, there's this explosion of new material. And the Drowsy Chaperone, the show within the show, is pretending to be one of those shows. They're very specific in the script that the Drowsy Chaperone is from 1928. So I went back in time and looked at how many musicals came out in the 1927-1928 Broadway season. Do you want to guess how many? You tell me. 51 new musicals on Broadway. Come on. 51. Most of them are forgotten. Good News was one of them. I know Good News. But Uh, so many of these I've never heard of before. Bottomland. Keep your jokes to yourself. (laughs) (laughs) The Manhatters. A la carte. Footlights. My Maryland. Half a Widow, Enchanted Isle, The Mary Malones. I mean, it just keeps going on. Sidewalks of New York. There's very little information about any of these shows. That's wild. Other than we know some of the tropes. Some of the tropes were uh, mistaken identities. Uh, Mm -hmm. Every show ends with a wedding. You know, like all of these little hallmarks. And many of them are on display here in The Drowsy Chaperone. They are indeed. Now, the production of The Drowsy Chaperone was directed and choreographed by Casey Nicola, who at this point hadn't really made his name as a director. He had been the choreographer for Spamalot. And Mm -hmm. I think we all saw Drowsy Chaperone and went, oh, wow, I think maybe a lot of the great ideas in Spamalot were his. (laughs) (laughs) Not to belittle Mike Nichols. No, of course. I mean, he's no. No slouch either. No, exactly. But this is one of the funniest, most creative directors and choreographers we have in terms of modern musical theater. 
He mm-hmm. not only did this show, but he did the Book of Mormon, Aladdin, Mean Girls. I mean, he's a really busy guy. Yeah, he sure is. When the show opens, like you said, in 2006, it gets nominated for the most Tony Awards out of the entire season, which is right. incredible. It wins Best Book and Best Score. It doesn't mm-hmm. win Best Musical. It loses to the Juggernaut Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys. Exactly. Which I, I, I'll say this because you're giving me the platform. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, I have uh, I have my own history with Jersey Boys, mm-hmm. a very loving and beloved history with Jersey Boys. Uh, I met one of my best friends working on Jersey Boys Aww. at the Amundsen. In 2007, however, I always felt that the Drowsy Chaperone got robbed of the best musical Tony because if you look at what the parameters are for what makes a show the best musical of a season, Mm -hmm. Jersey Boys, if you put those two shows side by side, you know, which one's more creative? Which one's more imaginative? Well, Drowsy Chaperone certainly is incredibly creative. And I, I mean, I was having a hard time even explaining how layered it is. Mm-hmm. I, I would probably push back a little, though, and say that Jersey Boys changed the game for contemporary musicals. Because up until that point, the jukebox musicals had been trying to either just be reviews like Smokey Joe's Cafe or mm-hmm. create fictional story to then put the music of, you know, a certain catalog into that story. Whereas Mama Jersey Boys, yeah, Mamma Mia, all shook up. Whereas Jersey Boys decided to tell the story of the people who actually wrote the music. And since right. then, Beautiful, there have been so many other shows that have become huge, huge hits because it broke that ground. You're so, right. You're absolutely right. Interestingly, and I, you know, again, I, me and my big mouth, for which I am famous, the the current Broadway hit "Ain't Too Proud," the the mm. story of the Temptations. Yeah, it did play Los Angeles. I wasn't working on it, of course, but it it did play Los Angeles before it went to New York, and I saw it. My buddy Todd and I went to see it, <laughs> and um, we both really enjoyed it. But on the ride home, I said to him, you know. That show is kind of Jersey Boys with the Temptations. The the structure of the show, and again, not meaning to talk crap about Des McEnough. I don't. I mean, listen, he's responsible for Jersey Boys. Yeah. But I felt like he took everything that worked in Jersey Boys and threw it into Ain't Too Proud. The structure of the show was almost identical. But in, anyway. I'm off the subject as usual. I Interesting. Don't know why? At the same time, though, you can see how if it ain't broke, by all means, use it to spotlight some people of color. <laughs> well, I, oh, well, yes. And interestingly <laughs> enough, you know, that's a very good point. And also, you know, just prior to Ain't Too Proud, Des uh, directed the Donna Summer musical. Right, 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 right. And it did not fly. Yep. Yeah. And 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 I never saw it. Um, I wanted to see it when it opened in La Jolla, but I did something. I've always kind of regretted this. I did something that I always bitch at other people for doing, and that is I read a really bad review in the L.A. Times, and I decided not to spend the hundred and ten dollars. I did 
what the general public has a tendency to do that I'm as a publicist, I'm always like, why would you read? Why would you? <laughs> if you want to go see something, why would you not go just because somebody you don't even know said so? You know, I've spent a career as a publicist telling people you have to keep in mind that it's only one person's opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a bad boy. So, <laughs> I, so I didn't see it. But speaking of the Donna Summer musical, and LaShawn's, The Color Purple was also the season of The Drowsy Chaperone. So the other Best Musical nominees were The Color Purple, which is also a, a beautiful show and probably was underappreciated in its time and got much more attention and acclaim in its revival with Cynthia Erivo. And mm-hmm. also The Wedding Singer, which for all of its faults has one of the best opening numbers in all of musical theater. And the best closing number. Oh, True. True. There are some great numbers in that show. Yes, there are some great numbers in that show. And I agree with you. Totally underrated. And, you know, let's not forget Laura Benanti. I mean, hello. Come on. She used to joke. She'd say the name of the show and somebody would applaud and she'd say, you're the person that saw that show. <laughs> no, a- actually, she used to joke like that about women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Saw it. Can't wait to do an episode about it. Oh, okay. Okay. I love talking to you, but we got to move on or else we're, we're uh, never going to yes, get Yes, please. I'll, get through this. I'm, I'm bad. You know I'm no, bad. No. For all those listening, Ken and I have gone to lunch many a time and it has turned into lunch and dinner. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so uh, the show wins a couple of awards, including, like I said, Best Book and Best Score, as well as Beth Level, who played the chaperone, the drowsy chaperone herself. And it runs for about 700 performances, which is not a huge, huge hit, but my goodness, it is a healthy run. You know what's interesting, too, is that on the calendar, 700 or 693, whatever the actual number is, mm-hmm. is a year and a half. I mean, and it's... And somehow, you know, somehow a year, when you say a year and a half, it sounds like a lot more than 693 that's a, performances that's a or good even point. 700 performances. You yeah. know, it's weird. No, it's so true. And also we're in a time where nothing's a huge hit unless it's around 10 years, right? Right, So right. But it has been done regionally. I've seen it regionally. And I, it, you know, according to our listeners, it is a, a much beloved show. So let's go through it, shall we? Yes, let's absolutely. All right. The show opens in total darkness, right? The, the lights don't even come up. We just hear the voice of a middle-aged man kind of bitching about theater. <laughs> the first line of the show is, I hate theater. <laughs> Which, if that line got a big laugh, you knew you had a great audience. Aww. You were like home free right away. Well, one of the reasons I personally love this show so much is that it is very nuanced in terms of how people who love musical theater have to deal with all of the things that make it theater, for better or worse, Mm -hmm. right? And right from the get-go, Man in Chair is telling us, I'm that dude. That's right. I love theater so much that I will pay the $110 to go see the show, but right before the overture starts, I'm terrified that it's going to be horrible. (laughs) (laughs) And please, God, no audience participation. You stay on that stage where you belong. (laughs) I didn't pay all this money to see the fourth wall come crashing down. (laughs) 
This writing is fantastic. It, oh, it's amazing. So the man in chair, which is what he's known as throughout the whole show, we don't even know his name. He tells us that when he is feeling down, or as he says, blue, he will listen to his records, his cast albums. Boy, oh boy, do I know that one. And instead of reaching for something that everybody knows, like the music man, he reaches for the 1928 largely forgotten musical, The Drowsy Chaperone. And he knows that nobody in the audience has heard of it, obviously. So he pulls out the record and he says, I would love to play it for you now. He's addressing the audience, which is interesting because no fourth wall. So he puts on the record and the overture starts. And when the show comes to life, it literally comes to life in his living room. The refrigerator opens and the whole little apartment transforms into this Broadway set and stage. Once again, smile on your face. Can't take it away. Such a great idea. Yeah. Such a great idea. The concept is just golden. And so the show begins. It's the day of a wedding. And we start meeting all of the characters who are part of this wedding. First of all, we meet Mrs. Tottendale. Yep, that's her name. She's she's older. She doesn't hear very well. It was originally played by Georgia Engel from the Mary Tyler Moore show, who, of course, always had this little voice and didn't ever talk above this. And so to see her in a theater was just... Oh, my God, you sound just like her. Well, thank you. I, who knew I had a Georgia Angle? Look, I can't do Carol Channing, but my Georgia Angle is pretty fantastic. Uh, she also has this assistant <laughs> named Underling. And is he like her butler? Yeah, he's the butler. Now, what's really fun about Man in Chair is that as he's explaining the plot to us, he's also explaining the behind the scenes of it all. We get to know not only these two characters in the show, we get to know the actors who were playing these characters. And right. these two people were like vaudeville stars. They were they were a, a, a duo who always did sketches and songs and dances in vaudeville. And so they have kind of been plucked from that art form and shoved into musical theater and and so in this show, they keep coming out and doing these little one-offs in the same way that vaudeville would have been. Next up, we meet the groom, Robert, who we have, of course, talked about, Robert Martin. He was played by this actor named Percy Hyman, who was... <laughs> I think I just realized that his last name is Hyman. I've seen yeah. the show a lot, and I just realize that right now isn't that funny uh ridiculous so percy hyman was a star in advertisements for toothpaste right yep and in the show his best man is george next up we meet mr feltzig and he is like a florence zigfeld mm -hmm. in fact if, if you kind of reorganize his name feltzig is actually zigfeld mm -hmm. he has his dumb blonde named Kitty, and she's really trying to become a leading lady and is hoping that she can do so because the bride, the one who's about to get married, has been Mr. Feltzig's leading lady, and now she's leaving the business in order to, to be, you know, just a, a demure wife. Next up, the gangsters, who are posing as what? Bakery chefs. Pastry chefs. <laughs> Bakery chefs. Oh, brother. Now, were these guys actually brothers? They were. Like in the cast, in the production. In real life. Did. In real yep. life. That's yep. crazy. Garth and Jason. 
how, how do you even find that? That feels like a needle in a haystack moment. You know, I don't actually know, to be honest. Um, you know, I, I actually became kind of friendly with Jason. He's actually been in Los Angeles a few times with a very uh, fun and clever uh, nightclub act that he does. Oh, cute. Uh, so I've helped him out a little bit with PR. But yeah, not twins, just brothers. Just brothers. That's but, so fun. Um, they were so so much fun. Now, the reason they're posing as pastry chefs is because they're actually gangsters trying to shake down Feldsig for money. Right. Then we have the grand entrance of the bride herself, Miss Janet Vandergraaff. Here to marry Robert Martin. <laughs> Played by, of course, Sun Foster. She has a chaperone who is there to, you know, make sure that she behaves. Unfortunately, the chaperone <laughs> is lit. <laughs> Am I late? What a fantastic character. I mean, the chaperone is Man in Chair's favorite character, as she should be, because she's everything you want in a musical theater diva, a little boozy, very dry, and yet willing to completely wear her heart on her sleeve in a huge ballad. Let me just stop you quickly to give you a couple of little fun tidbits Please. Uh, about that character. Or I should say about about the actor, Beth Level. Beth and Casey went way back. Uh, Casey was a performer. Casey the Casey, director. Uh, yeah. And he and Beth were friends for a long time. Wow. He knew that she was perfect for this role. And he campaigned for her with the producers. And what the producers initially wanted was uh, a so-called star in that role because right. the title was so problematic. <laughs> they thought maybe they could... If we have Patti Lapone, Right, as the drowsy chaperone. And w w I think the one actress that I was aware they had been talking to quite a lot, who I think would have been fantastic, is Andrea Martin. However... Oh, the, yeah. Right? She would, yeah. She'd be great. However... Watching Beth Level in this show was like watching a masterclass in musical comedy performance. Absolutely. You know, it, 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 it was so over the top and yet not offensively so. No, it's chewing the scenery in the best way. In the best way. There's, you know, there's no way you, you, you would watch this performance and go, oh my God, like <laughs> that's it. And when... On that famous Christmas Eve that I mentioned a little while ago, I said to her, I've been telling this story for 15 years, I said to her, I'll see you in June on television when you're accepting your Tony Award. Oh. And she said, no, 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 don't, I don't even know, don't say, don't, blah, blah, blah. and I said, you'll see. And, of course, she won. And they cut to, during her acceptance speech, they cut to uh, Casey Nicola, who was crying. Oh. And um, I called her. She lives in New Jersey. I called her home and I left a message on what in those days was still a machine. And uh, I said, hey, Beth, it's Ken Werther in Los Angeles. I just wanted to say 
Told you so. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, you you want to talk about a Tony Award-winning performance, that was one. Yeah. No, that's like a quintessential featured actress home run. Yep. That's fantastic. So, yeah. What a fun memory. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. The show is loaded with them, I got to tell (laughs) you. Okay, so the next up we have Trix the Aviatrix, who is the <laughs> only person of color in the entire freaking show. She basically comes on and says, I'll see you at the end when they yeah. when they tie the knot. Oh, and I forgot Adolfo, of course, who is just I mean, now talk about chewing scenery. This Oh my god. Absolutely brilliant. But like I'm not even sure why he's at the wedding. You know what I mean? Like, he's obviously there for comedy relief in this musical. But, like, there's no dramatic reason for this crazy character to show up. No. No, you're right. I never thought about that. It's true. What is he doing there? He was this Italian guy who was known for playing all of these different ethnicities, all of which had offensive accents. The man of a thousand accents, every one of them offensive. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about. This show is able to really talk about what it means to love musical theater and also grapple with the fact that there are some really racist parts of its history. Oh, my God. You know that line when Robert Martin and George are going to dance at the beginning of the show? Yeah. And and Robert starts to dance and George says, wow, where'd you learn that? Oh and gosh. Robert says, oh, it's a step an old Negro taught me. Oh, my God. And, of course, of course, it's it's a joke. That was the whole idea of it, of making fun of every single convention of musicals. Yeah, Right. That are absolutely part of its origins. Mm-hmm. Um, we can actually talk about this right now because I think there are other shows that have tried to do this and have aged really poorly. Thoroughly Modern Millie being one of them, Dames at Sea another, in which they're trying to poke fun at the horrible racist things that we used to do in this art form. But in recreating them and encouraging an audience to laugh at them, it feels like it's still racist. And I've had friends say to me that they don't think Drowsy Chaperone should be produced because there are these moments that almost celebrate offensive stereotypes by encouraging people to laugh at them instead of really take stock in the harmful effects and consequences of them. I totally see what they're saying. And I think the difference with the Drowsy Chaperone versus, say, Dames at Sea and Thoroughly Modern Millie is that we have the man in chair in Drowsy. We have somebody from present day and we see them and hear them judging the stereotype, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas Mm -hmm. those other shows take place in that time period. So there is no perspective from modern day to look back on it and be like, this is problematic and this is what we used to do. So how many times that you've uh, been in or choreographed and directed Dames at Sea uh, were you asked to remove Singapore Sioux? I've done it. I've done it four times half of which Singapore Sioux was taken out. And I think it should always be taken out. Ken Werther has a philosophy uh, that he tries to live by. Now I'm talking in the third person like that idiot that used to be in the White House. 
Good humor makes all things tolerable. And as serious a problem, you know, as has finally risen to the top about racism in this country, I think we always, as humans, have to be able to laugh at some piece of it. Uh, obviously, there's a lot about it that is not, well, none of it's funny. Mm -hmm. But you, I, I just feel like you have to be able to have a little chuckle. Look, humor is at the top of my list in terms of coping mechanisms. It, mm -hmm. um, it does allow us to explore things that might otherwise feel scary and um, unspeakable. Mm -hmm. I do think that as things become more speakable, we have to readjust and decide who are we putting it on for. I think mm -hmm. that in theater, we have a really skewed audience in terms of white people. So to be encouraging a, a lot of white people to, to laugh about racism maybe isn't the most effective thing. You know what I mean? Mm. If, if mm -hmm. we had more of a diverse audience and we could all get together and laugh about it, maybe that's less problematic. But I do think that Drowsy is as close as anything I've seen in really finding the right approach to being accountable for what is in our past and also laughing at it. Uh, very well put. And, and I must say, I, I couldn't agree with you more with regard to uh, the evolution of things as things change and more information does come to the fore, mm -hmm. which brings to mind, as long as we're talking about this now, sure. the intermission gag exactly. in this show. So for everybody um, who doesn't know, The Drowsy Chaperone, in terms of us going to see The Drowsy Chaperone, is a 90 no. No intermission. But within the show, you know, the 1920s show, it does have an intermission. And so during that moment when the man in chair goes to use the bathroom, I think, his record changes and it starts playing this other show that is very reminiscent of The King and I. Right. A King and I type <laughs> musical that's right. pointing out how archaic and skewed and wrong so many of those musicals were. And yeah. it's doing so by also incorporating the actors from the Drowsy Chaperone into that show. So to see them cast in these different roles is a whole other level of comedy. That's what we're talking about. Right. Now, again, this was 15 years ago. Right. That same Christmas Eve. I got into a real set to with David about that moment, that sequence, that that moment. He insisted that it was offensive mm. and there was no way around it. Wow. I remember being so distressed with that notion and I argued with him. Would I be so quick to be that dismissive today? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. I still think, well, looking back on it, let me say, uh, uh, the memory of it is still very funny to me, let sure. me put it that way. It is to me as well. I totally recognize that I'm a white privileged person, and so I maybe I don't even have an argument to make in, in this uh, arena. Right, um, right. As I've you know listened to the music and kind of gone through it again— 
Are there moments that could be dialed back a little bit? Absolutely. Does the song that is playing during that moment need to be so dun 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 dun? You know, so stereotypical. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not. Do they need to hit it so hard? Maybe not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it's a line that keeps changing the more that we learn and listen, and I hope that that we do. Yes, I, I agree with you. Uh, just recently, I think, well, say in the last year during quarantine, when I would be laying in bed at night when I should have been sleeping and I was scrolling uh, through <laughs> YouTube and I kept finding full productions of The Drowsy Chaperone really? that were done at one high school or another or one college or another. And at least two that I remember watching cut out that gag. That's, and you know that's what? The As you're sitting there saying it and you're talking about a high school production – I don't think I'd want high school kids to participate in that. I really wouldn't. I think also, if you didn't ever see it, you wouldn't know, obviously, you wouldn't know you were missing anything. Yeah. It's it's a complete non sequitur. Right. This is a great conversation. Thank you so much for being willing to have it. I know it gets tricky. Oh, my God. I'm sure we're going to hear from some of your listeners that have plenty to say about what we're saying. Absolutely. And they and they absolutely have every right to. I hope I hope. Yes, let's hear I I do hear from them. I hope you do, too. So back to the show We're after the opening number, after we meet everybody, we have a cute little tap number called Cold Feats, which is Robert and George. Uh, Once again, at its best, it's a sweet little tap number. At its worst, it's evidence that uh, white people stole a tap dance from black people. Mm hmm. Then this is the moment where we see the man in chair in his apartment start receiving phone calls. And he kind of uses it to uh, liken it to when somebody's cell phone goes off in the theater. Like, don't you just hate it when a phone interrupts a, a theatrical experience, which is exactly what's happening on stage. So he just lets it ring so the answering machine will pick it up. It's not the only time that it happens in the show. We then go to Janet, who, of course, like we said, is this star, but she's giving up showbiz to marry Robert. The actress who was playing Janet Vandergraaff was known as the Oops Girl. Like she was (laughs) she was a big star because in all of her movies, she was so gorgeous that like a man would wreck his car and then the camera would cut to her and she'd go, oops, you know, so like that, that's her whole thing. And she does this amazing number called Show Off in which she says, I am through with show business. I don't want to show off. I just want to get married and then proceeds to show off for the next four minutes, including cartwheels and splits and quick costume changes and juggling and i mean it's everything ventriloquism ventriloquism (laughs) every little uh gag you could want in a number it's fantastic now here's a little here's a little piece of trivia for you please during the final rehearsal room run through of that show sutton broke her wrist you're kidding doing that number Uh, doing all of the cartwheels i'm sorry yeah, I'm sorry. It wasn't that number. It was uh, an accident waiting to happen, oh, no. which comes up after that. Yeah. And of course, everybody went hysterical because the first preview, I mean, they were just about to move across the street to the theater. And, you know, that was another fun thing about working on that show. They built it in, you know, down the hall from my office. Oh, wow. So, you know, talk about being a musical theater queen. It was <laughs> just amazing to, you know, watch this thing get built from the ground up. And I remember that that run through thinking, 
oh my God, this show is a hit. Oh, this is like cute. amazing. Yeah, she she slipped and she fell backward and she, of course, put her hands out to catch herself and she snapped a small bone in, in one of her wrists. And so she did the first, I forget how many previews we did before the, the critics came in. Uh, she she had a, a cast on her arm. Wow. And she was a trooper. I mean, you know, as Maggie Jones says in 42nd Street, she's a trooper. Put an ace bandage on it. <laughs> you know, I mean, she literally, it was amazing. And the only thing she couldn't do for like a week was this sort of handstand, this arm twirl that she did. Mm-hmm. But once her wrist was okay, she went right back to doing it. Gosh, dang it. Good for her. Quick sidebar, which I, I there are so many sidebars in this uh, this episode already. I directed a show and a girl came in, you know, and it was in like a rehearsal room with mirrors. And I specifically made sure that the tables were situated so that the actor didn't feel like they were staring at themselves in the mirror while they were giving the audition. Mm-hmm. And a girl came in and she's like, I've prepared show off from the Drowsy Chaperone. I was like, awesome. Can't wait to hear it. She starts performing the number and keeps looking at herself in the mirror. Like, she can't help it. It's the facing the other way. But she keeps turning to, like, look at herself. And I don't think that it was a choice. But I think if it had been a choice, she may have gotten the role. (laughs) Because that's brilliant. You sing show off and then you literally can't stop looking at yourself in the mirror. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a riot. Now, Feltzig is realizing, okay, she's really serious. She's going to leave show business. I need to find a way to convince her not to leave. So he employs Adolfo, who is, of course, this ridiculous Latin lover, to seduce her so that she breaks off the wedding. Cue the vaudeville couple who comes out. It has nothing to do with the plot, as do many of these sorts of things in old shows. They're just there to make the audience laugh. Todd and Dale and Underling come on and do this kind of who's on first comedy bit with spit takes. And Todd and Dale just keeps doing spit takes into Underling's face. The man in chair hates that scene. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. Um, yeah. Which I have moments like that in old shows as well. I like, oh, I love this show, except for that part. By all means, can we fast forward? <laughs> yeah. Now we are in the bridal suite where Janet isn't sure if she can really go through with the wedding, which allows the drowsy chaperone, her, you know, her confidant and mentor, to step forward and sing an anthem. And for the actress playing the Drowsy Chaperone, it was in her contract that she always got to sing a big anthem. And uh, <laughs> and so she sings this big belty song as we stumble along. The anthem works and Janet realizes that she needs to find out if Robert really does love her. The chaperone says... Whatever you do, don't go wandering through the garden seeking out your fiancé to ask him the question upon which your future happiness depends. And then that's exactly what Janet does. Then Adolfo comes in and thinks that the chaperone is the bride, which once again (laughs) proves that he has no reason being at the wedding. He doesn't even know who the bride is. Uh, And because he thinks that the chaperone is the bride, he begins to seduce her in this song called, appropriately, Adolfo. Cut to the end of that number. She sleeps with him. (laughs) 
<laughs> the end. It's uh, great. Now, when Janet goes searching for Robert, he is very concerned about not seeing her because it's, of course, bad luck to see the bride before the wedding. So he has put on a blindfold, but he also wanted to go roller skating. So now he's roller skating with a blindfold on, singing a song called I'm an Accident Waiting to Happen. Which is exactly what happened in the rehearsal room. And that's when Sutton Foster broke her wrist. The irony on top of irony is... Absolutely. So Janet finds... Robert and pretends to be a French woman, mistaken identity, in order to test him to see if he will be true to her. He, of course, is drawn to her because she's actually his bride, and they kiss. And she is heartbroken because he cheated on her with her. <laughs> Skipping to the end of this act, we have the pastry chefs who come in and help us get into Toledo Surprise. Which, how would you describe this number? I think they work for some big investor in the show or something. There's some crazy connection there. Um, But, you know, they've been hired to shake him down. And so they've come back to say, you know, well, you know, I I haven't heard that she's not getting married yet. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and to try to save himself, he teaches them a dance step called... Uh, Well, the song that goes with the dance step is called Toledo Surprise. (laughs) It's really quite funny how quickly the pastry chefs fall for the ruse. They get, you know, it's like they get carried away being performers. Yeah. And that's when the whole thing becomes a big rousing musical number. Everybody doing uh, the choreography. Everybody's doing it. And then Aldolfo comes in and announces there's no wedding because... He slept with the bride and then Felzig looks and sees the chaperone and says, that is not the bride, right. you idiot. Right. And says, the wedding is off. And says, oh, the wedding is on. Then Janet comes running in and says, the wedding is off. Yes. And uh, why? Because Robert kissed a French girl. Her name is Mimi. She's very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also a very funny thing. Th- then all of them get into the Toledo Surprise right. song and dance. And and then, you know, there's the conflict for the first act curtain. Because now... It's like, is the wedding going to yeah. happen? Is the wedding not going to happen? It's just, oh my God. Oh, it's such a happy memories. Act one comes to a close in terms of the drowsy chaperone. Once again, we don't take an intermission. Act two begins with one of my favorite moments in the whole show. I put a monkey on a pedestal. Now, when the man in chair introduces this song, which is Janet mourning the fact that her wedding isn't going to happen, he says, the tune is lovely. Ignore the lyrics. The lyrics are terrible. And she begins to sing... I put a monkey on a pedestal, which is just the most silly thing you've ever heard. Now, in the CD booklet and possibly in the souvenir program as well, they really took advantage of the opportunities for creativity and created liner notes for the actual show within the show. And within that, there's a whole little written statement from the composer of that show, Sidney Stein. And it's entitled, How I Came to Write the Drowsy Chaperone. It says, I met Abe Flom at PS 137 in Brooklyn in 1910. He was a skinny little fellow, not much to look at. 
never said much or called attention to himself, but one thing he always did possess in abundance was a profound lack of talent. So it happened, <laughs> dear reader, this one fine day in the summer of 1926, Abe Flum researching a novel at the monkey house of the Bronx Zoo, slipped on a banana peel, the back of his cranium making fatal contact with the concrete steps underfoot. But he left behind, in his moth-eaten briefcase, a slim, unfinished volume, inauspiciously titled Honeymoonin' To Do. It was, at first glance, like Abe himself, not much to look at. Yet in this hapless hugger-mugger, however... There were the germs, and I do mean that in every sense of the word, of the components of a promising musical. And he goes on to say that Monkey in a Pedestal is an ode to Abe Flum, who, of course, met his doom that day in the Bronx Zoo at the Monkey House. Oh, my God. I got to tell you, I, I never read that. And now I, I'm, I'm, I keep getting sad that when I put all my music into iTunes, I got rid of all my CDs. And so I don't have the liner notes, and I don't know what I was thinking. I have recently, it's one of the things that I did in quarantine, threw away all of the jewel cases but kept the CDs and liner notes. Mm -hmm. Because there's just so much fun stuff like that in there that now I, I get to I, read on my podcast. I don't, I don't know what I was thinking. And by the way, real quickly, in the souvenir booklet, mm -hmm. it's, it's half and half. If you open it from the back, I don't know if you uh -huh. can see. Yeah, I can see it. It's like a scrapbook of the uh, that the that the man and Cher oh, makes. Oh, how he, cute is he that? He has all this all this stuff in it. Oh, how from, cute! So it's like uh, all of the original tickets and, and yeah. Look bills at this: the drowsy and... chaperone ticket, and it says Morosco Theater. Oh, that's so cute. Anyway, back to the show. So she put a monkey on a pedestal. So she did. She put a monkey on a pedestal. Uh, but she loves that monkey, and that monkey is Robert. Now, this turns into a whole number where there's a dancing chorus of monkeys, and she has <laughs> this complete emotional breakdown, kind of like a, a Rose's turn in Gypsy. And in that breakdown, she realizes that she loves this monkey more than anything in the world, and she wants to marry the monkey. And so then she belts her way to love and freedom. Another little inside tip. They were never happy with that number. They were never happy it's with it. It's a great number. They struggled with it all the entire time the show was in Los Angeles. I was really happy to see that it was intact when I saw the show in New York uh -huh. because they just thought, I think they went through a period of thinking that that, that it was too the much. whole monkey thing was just too silly. I always found it fascinating during the run, some of the things that they would continue to kick around. Quite often, it felt to me like they were obsessing over changing a joke mm. that worked. It seemed to be working. Whereas there were a few things that I thought, there's dead air there, you, gotta, you, know, you have to change that. And they never did. So it goes to show what I know. No, but I feel like we all run into that where... We're called early for rehearsal in the middle of the preview period, and, and we show up to the theater, and they're like, great, this is what we're changing. And everybody goes, this is what we're changing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Everybody always has an opinion. <laughs> we now have this pivotal moment where we need to figure out if the wedding is on or off. 
Janet reveals that she is Mimi, which means Robert is like, perfect. I didn't actually cheat on you because it was you. And she's like, I know, but it still hurts me that you thought I wasn't me. What should I do, chaperone? What's your advice? And the man in chair goes, all right, now here it comes. This is the moment I was talking about. Not only the culmination of the plot, I'm reading from the script, by the way, but a moment that has fascinated me more than any other and that has brought me back to this record again and again. Here it comes. And then the drowsy chaperone says, well, my advice to you is... And right as she goes to say this word, Adolfo drops his cane. And so you don't hear it perfectly. All you hear is while you can and so then the man says is she saying live while you can leave while you can love while you can you can't understand it because someone drops a cane and he like rewinds it over and over again and it's this great moment where adolfo drops the cane every single time and you lean in further and further to hear it and you can never hear it it's so great it's just perfect while you can while you can whatever she says It encourages Janet to marry Robert, which means that she is leaving show business. The gangsters are asking Feltzig what he's going to do because now he doesn't have a leading lady. Feltzig finally announces that he does have a leading lady. It's Kitty. And there is this funny joke where, like, she's always been so dumb throughout the show, but then all of a sudden she has psychic powers. Right, right. And... And is able to predict that Feltzig wants to marry her. So now there are going to be two weddings, uh, Robert and Janet, Feltzig and Kitty. And to add to that, we will also have Tottendale and Underling mm-hmm. and Chaperone and Adolfo. Yep. So now everybody's getting married, which means that Trix the Aviatrix comes back to fly everyone to Rio for their wedding. It's so ridiculous. But once again, from the time period, every show has to end with a wedding. And what's better than one wedding? Four weddings. Now, this number called I Do, I Do in the Sky builds to this glorious climax. And right in the middle of the last note, the power goes out in the the apartment, in the the man in chair's apartment. And he's furious, of course, because it's ruined this whole moment. Then he gets a knock at the door. And it's the superintendent of the apartment. And the guy says, I've been trying to call you. We had to shut the power off because we're replacing the breaker panel in the basement. But I need to get in there and and look at something real quick. And so they turn on some flashlights. And it's this really cute moment where everybody in the show is like paused in the middle of this final note And you see the flashlights kind of going through all of them to get to the breaker in the apartment. And the superintendent tries to have a conversation with the man in chair. He he says, oh, what are you doing? And and the man in chair is kind of embarrassed and says, I'm listening to a musical. And, And the superintendent goes, oh, my gosh, I love musicals. I took my wife to Miss Saigon. Wow, what they do with helicopters these days. Man in chair can't wait to get him out of the door and and just shoes him out as quick as he can. Now, when he leaves, he is left with this kind of unbearable amount of disappointment. His little escape was was taken away from him. And I find this part of the show to be where it goes from silly to profound in a really big way. Because escapism in musical theater is so important, like Hannah said. If we can have a little piece 
of something joyful to hold on to, it can get us through some of the darkest, worst times you can imagine. In fact, as I was researching some of this stuff, uh, Sigmund Freud himself talked about uh, escapism in this way. He said, people cannot survive with the little satisfaction they can steal from reality. There is a part of us as humans that needs creativity, imagination, to go beyond the ordinary mundane of life. And when I think escapism is the most profound is when it leads us to connection with others. And the experience of the man in chair shows us that escapism without connection leaves us hollow and sad. Here comes the superintendent who's trying to have a conversation with them, and all he can focus on is that he was robbed of his fantasy moment and can't wait to get him out of the door. Even when he's trying to have a conversation with them about musical theater. That's right. What if he had found a new friend that day? Good point. You know? And I, th- I think the happy ending for Man in Chair is that what this beautiful, inventive, theatrical premise provides for us as an audience is that the connection he gets to make is with these fictional characters. Right. They suddenly come forward and <laughs> invite him into their world. And then there's a reprise of As We Stumble Along. You know, Casey is so about those details that elicit either howls or uh, tears. Like you, or tears. I just want to encourage us as theater returns to us, which I believe it will. I have to believe it will. I believe it will as well. That one of the greatest joys of theater is that even when watching a show about a loner, when the house lights come up after the show, we are not alone. We have all gone through that together. Now, before we conclude, and I know you're going to be having to do a lot of editing because I don't ever shut up, (laughs) I I want to ask you a question that has been very curious to me about The Drowsy Chaperone. Yeah. Because the first time somebody said this to me, I was shocked. And that is, this person I was talking to says the man in chair dies at the end Hmm. and that he goes to heaven with them on the airplane. Because if you recall, the drowsy chaperone brings him over to the plane and he sits on the wing with a couple of the other characters and they start to fly away. (laughs) And then the curtain comes down and then the curtain goes back up and that's when the curtain call happens. Right. And after he takes his bow, he turns around and waves goodbye to them. And then he goes back to the chair and the curtain falls and he sits and then the house curtain falls. Interesting. So it's like a whole sequence of, so I kept saying to this person, but he comes back. Right. (laughs) You know, yeah, but that was for the curtain call. I'm like, no, at the very end of the show, he's back in his chair with his glass of wine, enjoying the, the album, the liner notes. So right. uh, I was just wondering right. if anybody ever said that to you or whether you ever had that thought. As the character, I would want to feel like I was going to heaven. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right. I think it's the whole sequence is a metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, as 
as Bob Crew says in Jersey Boys, it's a metaphor. And we're back to Jersey Boys. There we go, everybody. (laughs) That's why they won the Tony. Anyway. Kenny, thank you so much for doing this with me. I've had a wonderful time, and we've been able to like touch on so many different aspects of this little show. Do you think that it will continue to live on? I do, and the reason I do is it never occurred to me. For some reason, I, I never thought ahead to amateur productions. Yeah, yeah. I honestly think that it might stand the test of time simply because of amateur productions. I'm not sure that there are many regional theaters, like professional regional theaters, that are going to jump to put The Drowsy Chaperone in a season in a big space where they're hoping to sell a lot of tickets. I mean, as you said, it's difficult. But to have it as something for a community theater to do, like, are you kidding me? This is what we all grew up doing in community theater in a small way, right? It's a representation of that. Absolutely. So um, thank you so much, Ken. I really, really appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I love your podcast. I love you. And that none of that is because I'm your publicist. (laughs) I'm very grateful for all the help you've given me over the years. Thank you so, so much. You're amazing. That isn't why I said it, believe me. (laughs) No, but I truly am. As always, if you have recommendations you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, just like our friends Morgan and Hannah, please write to me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to connect with us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, at amusicalpodcast. Let us know what you think about this show that I'm sure a lot of people have uh, opinions and feelings about. If you want to be my favorite person in the world, Leave us a nice review and uh, go pick something out on our Tee Public store. Hey, Ken, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? Oh, heavens. Well, um, let's see. Uh, my website is really easy. It's kenwerther.com, K-E-N-W-E-R-T-H-E-R. Um, I'm actually uh, taking a little break from Facebook right now. However, I am on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I post on Instagram more than I post on Twitter, and my address at both places is at KenWertherPR. That's awesome. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And be sure to take a little time today to look for your bluebird as we stumble along. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.